Do you ever catch yourself wishing you didn't have to stay positive? Or maybe you've been working on keeping a positive mindset for years, but it still feels like a daily battle sometimes. Having a chronic illness means you're being told to stay positive all the time. And let's be honest, it's exhausting. Because pushing ourselves to stay positive is not actually positive. There's a much easier way to get a strong, positive mindset and all of the feel-good perks that come with it without the pressure of looking on the bright side. Check out my free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset. In it, I give the straight scoop on strategies that work and common strategies that are a waste of time and energy. Go to andreahansencoaching.com now or use the link in this podcast description and get your free resource, The No BS Guide to a Positive Mindset, today. After you were diagnosed, did you go through a little bit of an identity crisis? I totally did. Who am I in this world? Now that I have a chronic illness, how do I accept my illness without it becoming my primary identity? And if my chronic illness isn't a part of my identity, does that mean that I'm in denial? I have always found these questions really interesting. And I did this work for myself after I was diagnosed. I also helped a lot of clients through figuring out their own new identities. And now we're hearing about the research side of things, looking into the science of our identity. This is a truly fascinating discussion with Dr. Morgan April Morley. She was so fun to talk to, and she takes us all to school in a good way. And she gives us more than a head start when it comes to crafting who we are now that we've been diagnosed. We have an interesting conversation about post-traumatic growth and resilience, two of my favorite subjects. And she opens my eyes to a whole new way of looking at it. And at the end, she walks us through a brilliant therapeutic technique called identity mapping to help us identify and piece together the multiple identities that we all have. I really hope you enjoy because I always love an interview where I feel like I leave with a new friend. This is definitely one of those conversations. So please enjoy this week's episode. And as always, visit andreahansoncoaching.com for more on Dr. Morgan April Morley resources that we talk about in the show, and there are a lot of them that you're going to want to follow up on, and also transcripts from today's episode. Welcome to the Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis podcast. I'm Andrea Hansen, author, motivational speaker, and master certified coach. When I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I was told I would never reach my goals, but I did. And I'm on a mission to prove that life with a chronic illness can still be expansive and quite remarkable. Everyone has their own unique path. I'm talking to people living with a chronic illness that come from different backgrounds, have different points of view, and are achieving amazing life goals of all kinds to inspire you to achieve what you thought was impossible. These stories are raw, uncensored, and judgment-free. This means that there may be some adult language, sensitive topics, and possible triggers for listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I am sitting here with Dr. Morgan April Morley. She is a professor of communication studies who researches how our identity affects and reflects our health and well-being. Most recently, her research has been focused on the multiple ways individuals' identities change after chronic illness diagnosis and how those changes impact psychological well-being and treatment adherence. Her research has been presented at national conferences and published in peer-reviewed scholarly journals. 
Beyond her research, she has taught interpersonal communication, health communication, and research methods at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and is looking forward to teaching similar courses at California State University, Sacramento in the fall. Dr. April Morley founded her passion for understanding and giving voice to those with chronic illness because of her struggle accepting her lupus identity. At 19 years old, she was diagnosed with lupus, but for many years, she felt as though accepting this identity would negatively affect her career and family goals. Through her research, her support networks, and social media support groups, she has come to understand that living with chronic illness is both positive and negative. Now, Dr. April Morley seeks to explain chronic illness research and her experience to help doctors, patients, and support networks understand the nuanced ways chronic illness impacts your life. You can check out her chronic illness support group for young adults on Facebook or her recent Instagram venture at Chronically Mo. Hello. Hi, Morgan. How are I'm you? I'm really great. I'm so excited. I'm excited because we're going to have such a juicy conversation. We were talking before the podcast about how what we do is very similar. You're researching it, which I can't wait to hear about all of that. And when I was working with people who were mostly newly diagnosed with multiple sclerosis as a mindset coach, I went in thinking I was going to help them with their career or how to write a, a letter to their boss about accommodations. And I very quickly realized that what they needed help with was who they are now that they've been diagnosed with MS. And you yeah. did something very similar. Yeah. So basically, I studied communication at my undergrad at KU. And I kind of liked communication, didn't really understand where I was going to take it. But at the same time, I was getting diagnosed with a chronic illness when I was in my um, sophomore, freshman or sophomore year of college. And I just really wouldn't take the medicine. I wouldn't adhere to any of the treatments. It was just not for me. I was like, this is going to wreck. I knew no one in college. I was like, this is going to wreck who I'm going to be. Like, let's just act like we don't have lupus. Um, so I tried that for a while, all the way until I came into my PhD program when I was, I'm guessing like 24, I guess. And it was actually the, uh, the colleagues here that were like, hey, you can like totally be yourself with your lupus identity. And if you don't want to, if you can't come to class one day because you're having a flare up, like that's cool too. We'll just help you out. And I was like, whoa, like people are actually understanding of this. Maybe there's something that I should be studying with this. I like love methods. I love research methods and stuff. Like maybe I have a unique niche in what I want to do that is to give voice to these individuals with chronic illness that actually help them understand how their identities are changing once they get diagnosed. Right. It's something that is not mm -hmm. talked about. I know for me, when I was diagnosed with MS, they talked about what MS was. I had a nurse come in and tell me all the things that I could no longer do, mm -hmm. which is a whole other thing, right? Because yeah. I was like, who are you to tell me that? But I, all of the things, right? Talked about treatment, talked about all the kind of stuff. What they didn't talk about was emotions, not mm -hmm. like clinical psychological stuff, but like just emotions. I think they wrap it up in this whole, mm -hmm. this is your new normal kind of a discussion, which I don't hate know about it. you, but I hate, it. hate that term. Yeah. Cause it like, to me, it totally just 
brushes off the fact that life is changing all the time and there really Literally is forever. no normal. And if you think you're going to have a normal, oh, yeah. you're going to be fighting change mm-hmm. the entire way. But they don't talk about it. They don't talk about, hey, mm-hmm. you're different now. And it's not that you're different now because you have different things going on. Like you're, you're different, like psychologically on the inside because this whole thing has been forced on you. And it's so much deeper than just emotions and your new normal. So like when we look, so I guess finished my dissertation. And one of the big claims I make is we typically function in Western society for a biomedical model or what we call a biomedical approach, which is this idea that we, it's really fitting for acute illnesses, right? Like I broke my arm or like I have the flu, right? So it's this idea that we want to find the biological cause to what's going on in the body and we want to cure it. And that is how Western medicine is largely set up. But that model doesn't really work quite well for chronic illnesses because a lot of times it's difficult to pinpoint the exact cause of whatever the chronic illness symptoms we're experiencing are, you know, diagnostic journeys are difficult, but even beyond that, like you can't cure it. So our, our model just really doesn't work for that. And it doesn't really take into account the experience, the lifelong experience of chronic illness. Like you're saying, they're like, well, this is the things you can't do. So like, you're telling me I can't run for the rest of my life. Like what, how, what if I want to run? Right. Yeah, which I was going to say, which, by the way, is often not true. I can't tell you how many people, and you probably have too, I talk to who, when they're diagnosed, especially, they're told to, like, just put your feet up or don't, like, for me, it was, you can no longer take hot showers. <laughs> and I was like, no, that's ridiculous. I'm like, I took one last We're night. Fine. I don't We're know what you're about. We're fine. <laughs> it's so true. It's, it's a deficit model saying the things we can't do. And that is really problematic, both for financial reasons, right? Saying, well, you can't work, right? But also for like psychological reasons, like what what does my life now exist of? And are these dreams just suddenly and very, very suddenly most of the times just dropped away? These things that I've always wanted and desired. And our physicians largely are not taking that into account when they give us a diagnosis. And so we're just kind of left on our own journey of what does this mean for our identity? What does this mean for our self-concept? Especially, I think, when you're young. Like, chronic illness aside, I'm 100%. just figuring out who I am in this world. And now I've got all of this stuff, and I'm like, I'm not going to not date. I've always wanted to get married. I'm not going to not get married. Uh-huh. That's so funny you like mentioned like, dating and stuff, because that's something that I kind of want to take my research at, kind of moving forward a little bit more, is because I had a relationship at the time that I was diagnosed, and it was a pretty good relationship, but like, he just did not understand like me being tired and not able to go out and do things. And now I had, I no longer was suppressing my fatigue. Like I had been prior to diagnosis. Now I like had an answer for what it was. And like that, it definitely was part of the demolishing of that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I think that when I look at my now husband, he didn't know me before I was diagnosed. Like he, he never met the pre MS Andrea. And I think on some level, that's actually a, a good thing because yeah. he's not, he's yeah. not like, comparing me yeah. to how I used to be. And he's just a hundred percent accepting. I was, I know some people, it's, it's always a question of like, when do you tell people what's going on? I was always very upfront because I'm just always, I'm just an open person. And so I was always very upfront. Yeah. So that kind of like speaks to take this from real life onto research to like, 
I've actually found that our relational identity is what shifts the most. So that makes sense kind of what you're saying is in my research, I've seen that these relationships and when they are, when you had a relationship prior to diagnosis, you're experiencing the biggest shifts in your identity in your relationship. And those are the most impactful on your psychological well-being. So exactly what you're saying is it may be advantageous for people that are in serious relationships at the time of diagnosis that are then being compared to this kind of old identity to actually get out of those at times and maybe move to new relationships where this is just who they are from the get-go. I feel like for me, I had a lot of comparison myself. Sasha used to be able to do this. And I wasn't, I mean, I think I was a lot like you where I I wasn't, it's not like I was in denial, but I was just like, mm-hmm. I'm going to continue doing what I do. You know, I love to run. I started practicing martial arts, did all sorts of stuff. So I was like, this is not going to let me this is not going to make me change what I want to do. But at the same time, there is in the back of your head, this little comparison of like, mm-hmm. you didn't used to get so tired. You didn't need to take a beat like you do now. And what does that mean? And what is that going to mean for 30, 40, 50 years from now? A future question is just so difficult. Gosh, that fear of mm-hmm. the fear of what's to come. Mm-hmm. And the uncertainty, there's such high uncertainty involved. What is this next 40, 50 years? What does it look like to have kids? I, and I mean, I still have that fear. I don't know about you, but I, I fear that often still. And I think like for me, when I'm reading my participants' responses, I do some open-ended questions where they lay out their fears and what's going on in their lives. And I, it's pretty scary for me when I'm reading someone that taps into those same fears of, am I going to be able to get married and have a kid? I need that stability financially in case like I have a flare and I can't work. But can I do that? Is that like fair to that partner for me to do that? And like when I'm reading those things, I'm like, wow, that really taps into how I feel. Yeah, it's a big lesson in when it comes to like mindset coaching, I call it staying out of the pool. So you don't want to get in the pool with a client or someone that you're working with, or if you're reading responses, you want to stay out of it. And it's, I found it to be really freeing, but also it, sometimes it could just take a lot of energy to separate myself and listen to what they're going through. Because when I'm coaching people, it's all about them and what's going on. And I have to take all of my fears and everything that I think about my MS or MS in general or anything like that. And I need to, I don't want to say compartmentalize Mm -hmm. because I feel like that's such a, that word has such a bad rap, but you are kind of compartmentalizing it for a second and really yeah. Just separating yourself. And I find that that's helpful, but it also takes a lot of energy. I think that maybe instead of the word compartmentalize, I think maybe it's more minimized because I think that what makes you so good when you're talking to those clients that are experiencing MS or other chronic illnesses is that it is still a part of you, right? As much as like you can minimize that identity, like your MS is still part of your identity, and that's like a superpower for what you do, right? So I think that's super cool. That's like fascinating. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because it is. I mean, even though I am the first to tell you I am not MS, I am not my illness or anything like that, it it comes back to that idea of identity. MS is very much a part of my identity because I've now had it for over half my life. Wow. And I mean, just slightly. I'm not that old. Like, just slightly over. <laughs> <laughs> but technically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, wow, this really is something that's baked in. So walk me back when you were first diagnosed, your formation of your new identity. Yeah, it wasn't good. It was it was like pretty tumultuous. It was just, I basically, this diagnosis I got at like the University Health Center, which like they don't really specialize in people with chronic illnesses, right? 
So he looked at my thing and was like, hey, we can't see you here anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? I don't, I'm not from this area. I don't, what do you mean? And he's like, you need to be referred to a rheumatologist. And at that time, when it was when insurance, if you have a pre-existing condition, you could be denied from other insurances. And so for those getting diagnosis, like I was literally told, hey, you have lupus. We're never going to write that down on a piece of paper. And I was like, so do I have lupus? Like for a long time, I was like, do I actually, like, maybe I don't. And I think that actually led to me, like, not adhering to treatments and like not really accepting any part of that identity because it was like, we don't want to put it on there because we know we're going to be changing insurance if we don't want you to be denied, which was a smart choice, I guess, for my doctor. But for my identity, was, like, a really detrimental part of my journey to be like, is this what I have? Is it not what I have? And, like, I was getting medicine prescribed to me that was for lupus, but under disguises of other, like, conditions so that, like, they didn't put lupus on there. Wow. Which is just like a kind of a mind screw to begin with, because now it's like you have a secret or you have something that you can't talk about. Because I remember those insurance forms. And if one form at one insurance didn't match exactly the form that you were doing on the new insurance. From physician to physician, right? So you go to your physician, you're like, do you have pre-existing conditions? Right. Well, like off record, yes. It was... It was really scary. And then, so I didn't really accept anything until I really came to Nebraska, which is where I'm at right now for my, finishing my PhD. And like, I found a doctor here and she like really dove into what my tests were and stuff like that. And I just straight up asked her because at that time, like the pre-existing condition thing had already been like removed and like part of insurances. And I was like, I was like, listen, I, I need to know, I need you to tell me like, you have lupus. And she's, I can tell you with 100% confidence, you have lupus. I think it was from that moment and then with the support of the people here that I was able to finally start to accept my illness identity. But I will make no claims that I have fully accepted this illness identity in any way, shape, or form. I think there's this really foundational article that I have my students read and stuff that talks about an IBS journey and how you look and how you dress is like a mask for IBS. I will send it to you. It is like super fascinating. I will link yeah. to it in the show notes. Oh, it's one of the best. And I've been on a panel with this, the woman that wrote it and she's just, it's really beautiful. Just it's, and it's like very, not like research. It's like very, it ties in research, but it's also very valuable. But it's just this idea of like how we dress can be a way to make chronic illnesses more invisible. And I fully recognize that in myself. If I'm having a flare up, like I will fully, I'm going to be in heels. That sounds ridiculous, but I'm going to stomp into my classroom and heels because that's the way that I can feel like some sense of control or agency. So I think that what is true acceptance of your illness identity, I, I can't say. And I don't think they're, I mean, Sharmaz, which is an, an older scholar, would say it's full acceptance. I'm not sure that that really is where it intrudes into all of your parts of your life. And I, I don't know. this. So this is part of my research that I fight against. Is I don't think that like that being your primary identity is necessarily best. It may be for some, I'm not in the business of making like prescriptions of things, but I don't know. So I think that I'm at the point where like, it it is definitely part of my identity, but it's not the primary part. And oftentimes actively I disguise it and I'm for better or for worse. Everybody has a different idea of this and everybody looks at it differently. Having said that, I 100% do not look at MS as being my primary identity in any way. There are long periods of time where I don't even talk about it. That was one of the things when I was starting this podcast. On one end, I was like, look, I see this need to share stories of people like you that are doing this amazing stuff while living with a chronic illness, because I feel like that's not highlighted enough. Yes. Oh my gosh. And then I thought, you know what? Do I want to talk about this all the time? Because it's not, this is not who I am. And then I had to 
I had to reconcile the fact that, again, it's that minimizing it, right? On my end, it's like, I had to reconcile that just because I'm talking to people and highlighting it and being this advocate of people with chronic illness still does not make my primary identity. 100%. This is in my research, what I see a lot of times and we call them identity gaps and they're called personal and enacted identity gaps. So how you talk about yourself, and how you feel about yourself when they're feeling discrepant can create tensions and it can kind of have this like negative effect on your psychological well-being. It's super common in individuals with chronic illness because it's like we're constantly balancing things. And then how people don't have tensions is they maybe do create a chronic health identity that is their salient, most salient identity, their most impactful identity throughout all contexts. But for me, when I've met people where that is their primary thing, as someone with chronic illness, I actually find myself not really enjoying that. Like I don't need to talk about my chronic illness all the time. And so I, when, you, when you're talking about this podcast, I felt the same way when I started my Instagram, Chronically Mo. I was just, you'll see when you look at it, there is not, there's been a few posts, but then I kind of find myself like every day, am I supposed to get up and make a post? It just feels like, it almost feels inauthentic because that's not how I'm living my life. 100%. Yeah, it, it does. Yeah. It makes you feel like because you're not living your life that way, you're not mm-hmm. yep. doing it justice in some way or somehow, like I said earlier, like you're in denial. And I was like, I don't think I'm in denial. I mean, I don't know what the textbook definition of denial is, but I don't think so. But I still don't, t- I don't you know, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Andrew Hansen. I have a mess. Right. I'm a Gemini. <laughs> I like to go on hikes. So true. <laughs> we're kind of like left out of the conversation. And what I mean by that is like the people that don't accept it at all, they're kind of in the conversation. And then the people that go so far and like it's everything about them, they're definitely in the conversation. But it seems to me all people that aren't. And like, I think that there's a real, a real gap in how we talk and how we learn about chronic illness that doesn't allow for this liminal state and actually persuades us not to have liminal states. I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people, when they are diagnosed, it's you want to find out about it, right? I mean, you want to know what is this? Because quite often what has led to the diagnosis is sometimes years of your body Mm -hmm. going nuts. And so you want to find out everything you can. And so you're researching and you're talking to other people with it and you're talking to your doctors and your nurses. And so what do you do it? You're having these major conversations all the time about you having this diagnosis and you having this illness. And it it's like a bubble that you can very quickly get into and think that that is all it is. And again, that's why I love doing this because you're hearing from people and saying like, hey, yes, you can talk about it and you can own it and it can be part of your identity. And it does not mean you're in denial, but you can step out of that bubble and you can still go do amazing things. Can I tell you, can I just plug this fun fact in this research study that's not even published yet? hundred okay. percent. So I, this research study I just finished, and I'm, I was so excited about it when I found this finding. 10 years, 10 years is the time that it actually takes to have your identity like affect these like treatment adherence, well-being outcomes, stuff like that. What I asked myself when I found this, so I have 400 or so participants, I'm running data on this and I find this, and I like sat there, asked someone with chronic health, I'm like, I should, I should be able to explain this. And I was like, what about 10 years? It's this magical point in our identity that has all these profound effects on our well-being. And I need to answer more things. I need to do more research at this point. But I just kept thinking that at some point you, you start getting into this level of, and I don't really like the word acceptance, but like stability, stability maybe. And like 
who, who your chronic illness is within you and how that measures out against all these other identities that are part of us, there becomes a level of stability at 10, at 10 years. But then my question is, is how can we make that stability before 10 years? Right? Oh, I love that. When you say that, and I don't know about the 10-year mark, but one thing that came up for me is I know for me a big thing that helped me And I'm with you. It's not necessarily accept it because it wasn't that I wasn't accepting it, but it made me come to that feeling of stability. I had to get to the point where I no longer feared the future, which is something that we were talking about earlier. And I had to, and it wasn't that I was thinking everything's fine and it's all going to be great. Forget it. Just think positive thoughts. No, no, no. It's just that I almost had to just call my own bluff and realize what is the worst that can happen and can I handle it? And it's like developing this extreme sense of self-trust to know that I have my own back no matter what is going to happen because I can't possibly think of all the different things that are going to happen. And by the way, things might happen that have nothing to do with MS and I'm still going to have to deal with it. So turning that corner for me was was stopping that fear of the future because really the fear of the future was the fear that I wasn't going to be able to handle it. Let me go to an analogy from your book because I was I was reading over this today and I loved your backpack analogy that I think it was your dad. Oh my gosh, with the brick. That gets like really hit home and I was like, how can I get this message out? Like I'm going to make all my students read it. But that's neither here nor there because I'm just thinking from what you're saying that it may be that at 10 years or around that marker, you develop a toolbox to put in the backpack. Okay, imagine when you're a kid and you have all your like crayons and stuff in the toolbox. That's what I imagine. Like, you have the toolbox to know that you're going to be okay with whatever comes your way. And the toolbox may be self-trust, right? But it also may be your social groups are more stable, right? Like your relationship with your husband is more stable. Your your income is more stable where you're not fighting against like, if I have a flare, if I can't do this, like what does that look like, right? So there's a sense that you created at that point, like a toolbox that you can tap into and open up and use those tools whenever you can and whenever you need to. Yeah, I totally think that's possible because whether we know it or or not, or whether we realize it or not, I think everybody, when they're diagnosed with a chronic illness or even if they don't have the diagnosis, they just know that their body is going crazy enough that something's just not right. I feel like we go into that survival mode and it looks different for different people. Like for me, I was halfway through my master's program when I was diagnosed. I, I eventually went back and finished it. But at that point I left Mm -hmm. because I was like, I got to start work. I got to get, I got to get an income. I got to get insurance. And yeah, it was like, I need income. I need stability. I need this, I need that. And, and it wasn't like a straight line to like amazing tools and you're fantastic, but it does show that instant like survival that you need. And it's like, instantly we want to get those crayons. You need to grab those crayons and like your toolbox at the time of diagnosis is empty. Like you just have the box and it's just sitting there empty. Yeah. And you're like, dang, I got to fill this thing. Like, how do I fill this thing? And who is giving me the right information? How does this collide with who I am right now? Right? Yes. What do I even fill this with? How do I know I need crayons exactly. instead of number two pencils? Like, what is this? Like our <laughs> system is not really set up to help us decipher what tools we even need to develop. And I think part of it is, I don't necessarily think that 
I think that our system is missing components because yeah. it's missing people. I don't feel like we should go to doctors and 100%. expect them to do all the things. I was very lucky that my neurologist who diagnosed me and I was with him for a very long time was amazing. But I realized that he is the exception. And I am totally fine if you maybe don't have the best bedside manner, as long as you understand and you know what's going on and you can tell me, you know, 100%. Like, that's all I need you to that's do. What, so that's exactly what I think too. Because I think that we can't, we can't ask these physicians to be everything all in one. They're not therapists or they are a physician. And I want them to look at the bodily aspects of me. However, I think our physicians largely, and there's always exceptions, but largely do a better job of providing us with information about support that we need outside of the medical office. And I find that that is where it's a lot of the time lacking for individuals getting a diagnosis of chronic illness, regardless of the age. It's just they're like, first off, the diagnostic journey is super long. Getting someone to believe that you have pain that's invisible is can't be done really. So once you get a diagnosis, then it's okay, next step. And it's like, it's, that's where your journey ends without support. And like for us being educated and coming from maybe for me, like middle class, right? Like I had resources at my disposal to help me find these and like, literally spend my education researching my own self right <laughs> but like there's a lot of people that don't and so what can we do, be doing better to support these people outside of the physician's office we know how difficult the medical system is to navigate for us we are native english speakers right and, like i spend my life like educating myself on this stuff and then i often think what if you weren't like what if english wasn't your first language, right? Or what if you didn't have the money to go to the doctor? I'm just thinking there's just so many barriers to handling a chronic illness that we haven't even experienced largely, or I haven't. And so it's like, I, that's kind of, you know, my end goal is to create a foundation that really assists in those kind of things, because I think that there's just such a problem with it. It is such a problem. I think it is one of the largest failures of our healthcare system is that it is not set up to help people who don't have a leg up who need all the resources and don't have the support, that is hands down one of the biggest failures yeah. of our healthcare system. And I love that you're looking yeah. at changing that. We keep saying like, do the research, right? I think this is even an issue, right? Because it's like, who can read the research though? Who even has access to the research? We have such an issue of like even getting information to people. Like our resources, some of them aren't even credible resources, right? And like, those are the ones that are accessible to people that need it. I just think that, you know, we can talk about all the holes in the system and I, both of us are trying to work to resolve those holes, but we just need more people on our side to, to resolve them. So something that you tapped on is looking at the research and doing your own research while living with lupus and while also, as you know, we talked about creating your identity, <laughs> you're doing yeah. this all yeah. at once. It's a really fun time. Some days better than others. Yeah, it is a whole lot. And I think that I, again, have an immense amount of privilege to just be in this environment where I can do this research and live in a place where I'm not worried about my well-being and those basic hierarchical needs. But nevertheless, like it's been incredibly difficult. And I think that having flares and trusting your body and... um I vividly remember times where I walked into the classroom, I was teaching a health communication classroom, and I had the choice because I was experiencing pretty severe brain fog. And, you know, leading a class with brain fog is not ideal. <laughs> but so I was like, I have the choice then to like, actively disclose this and have this be like a center of conversation in my classroom and a learning experience. Or I have the choice to, you know, be fraudulent and try my best to give them an activity or something that like takes the pressure off of me. And those were some really pivotal moments 
in in my life thus far of saying I'm going to lean in instead of lean away from this because I think this could be a very impactful experience for my students to see like what it is to live with a chronic illness in a day to day life. Oh, I bet it was. What were what were oh, some so of the compassionate, so caring? Just I cannot believe you go through this. How often does this happen? Wanting to know more information. What does the rest of your day look like? They were very concerned. It was like, okay, thank you for being here, but like, what what are you doing next? And you know, you know, like going home, going to bed. Like I'm not gonna stay. I'm not gonna have office hours after. It's kind of doing that bare minimum. And then it actually made they their final project in that class was looking at individuals' chronic illness experiences, but looking at them from like a a biomedical model way of these are the symptoms of it. This is how you get diagnosed, but also looking at real experiences of it. So I made them like go to Reddit and go find blogs of chronic illness experiences. And they had to produce their final presentation on both like the social and relational aspects of a chronic illness, as well as um, these more like biological or medical aspects. And a lot of these were pre-med students and it was very impactful to see how they grew through that experience. And, and something fun that I did is, you know, we don't get to choose our chronic illness. Like you weren't like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to pick out MS. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I so, want this one. So I assigned them randomized chronic illnesses. I said, this is your chronic illness. And the kid came up to me. He was like, do I really have to have IBS? I was like, yeah, good luck. That's what you're going to talk about. He's like, OK. I was like, well, welcome to life. <laughs> I mean, talk about immersing them in this, especially like IBS. Highly stigmatized. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. So I guess to answer your full question, this has been a difficult journey, but I think that I, over time I learned how to tap into that journey as one of my superpowers and something that could make my classroom distinctly different than the average professor's classroom that you see at a college. Yeah. You are giving that superpower to your students because you're allowing them to see the psychosocial aspect of living with a chronic illness. And I think that is so important because I think if anything, it mm -hmm. brings that compassion to the future people that they're going to be working with, be it patients because they're doctors or just people in their lives that they come in contact with. And I think like the invisible nature of it for me at least has been a challenge that I lean into quite a lot because I think that like when you have an invisible chronic illness or something about me that visibly would give you chronic illness, I think most parts about me actually visibly give you no chronic illness because I dress a certain way and act a certain way. Right. But I think then I have, I, I have a choice to disclose. And I think that that is a sometimes daunting choice to disclose, but also can be very impactful and change the way that my students or just people in general view individuals that are chronically ill. Oh, you don't look ill. Oh, you're not old enough to have this. I mean, these are all the comments you get, you know, it's bleeding fatigue to someone that is, doesn't have a chronic illness. Like, you know, what does that look like? Oh, just drink a coffee. Well, that's not exactly what it is. <laughs> so yeah, I think that it's just it's interesting. It's challenging, but it's also really insightful and very impactful for me. And I hope my students. I, I can't imagine that it's not for your students. And just being able to show that a lot of people who are chronically, chronically, can I say the word? <laughs> you can, you've got this. <laughs> I cannot say the word. So a lot of people who have chronic illness, it's a good lesson to have. Hey, just because someone looks normal doesn't mean that they can see you with both of their eyes, right? Doesn't mean that half their body isn't numb or tingling. Yeah. And you remind, there's this like case study that we commonly give to students and it reminds me of that. It's like the person that parks in the handicapped parking spot, but they get out of it and someone attacks them. Like, you're not handicapped. How dare you? 
Ugh, I eat that yeah. every time I see that. There's so many stories like that. You don't know. You don't know why I'm taking the elevator to the third floor. I know I look very able-bodied, but hey, it really takes it out of me and I'm really fatigued when I get up the stairs. So don't judge me. Parking farther away and walking that parking lot, especially if it's like in the summertime or you don't know what the rest of their day looks like, that Literally. could take hours off of their day. That could be, you know, like that could be the end of their day or just one errand and then they can get a couple more things. Or even if you think about it, like, beyond like physical activity, like social, like I'm different people, you know, there's, you know, introverts, extroverts, whatever. Right. But for someone that's chronically fatigued for me, like social interaction takes it out of me. Like I need a day to rest from a social interaction. And so I think that even understanding that and the nuances of what it means when someone says they can't go out, does it mean that they're like physically ill? Maybe not. Maybe it just means that, like they just need a mental break because that was so fatiguing the last time they hung out or whatever it is. Yeah. Or they have to play. They have something the next day they got to plan for. You know, it's kind of like if you're running a marathon the next day, you're not going to go out drinking the night before. I'm, you know, I'm very extroverted. And maybe you should stop and just do a quick definition because I know there's a lot of talk about it. Introverted versus extroverted doesn't mean right. that you like people or don't like people or anything. It yep. just means that you either get energy from interacting or you don't. And it sucks the energy out of you. And to recharge, you either need to be around people or yep. be by yourself. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you like people or whatever. And so I have to watch out because I can get very extroverted to where when I have an interaction, it just like, boo, 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 it just charges me up. But then after and when I'm alone, it's like oof, total crash because that energy charge is just gone. There's always this element of you have to be, I don't want to say you have to be, but you need to be okay with it, mm -hmm. right? You can't beat yourself up about it. You can't try to see yourself through what you think totally. other people are thinking about you. To that. I think that after getting diagnosed and coming to those realizations about myself and like the guilt that used to go alongside saying no to people and all of those things, I came to the point where I just got really selective about my friends. Like I was like, I'm going to choose a friend from the get-go. If, if I don't think they can understand if I cancel last minute because I am tired or simply just don't have it in me for that day, that's not a friend I want. And so I just did like a, like a spring cleaning of friends. Just like out, out. Me too. Yeah. See you later. AKA <laughs> never. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I demoted a lot of people, especially, you know what? Especially in that 10 year period after I was diagnosed. Interesting. Because you learn like when you're diagnosed, you learn a lot about the people around you and you know you're changing because your own identity is changing and if those people aren't on board they're very clearly not on board and I'm trying to think if I I didn't like necessarily cut people out but I remember like looking at kind of the hierarchy of who do I want in my inner circle and then other people I'm like you're just demoted a little bit mm -hmm. like I will text I will right. text with you but I'm not gonna go to any big measure to Right. do anything or see you or you know right waste my energy which is so precious yeah i think it's and i think that like i think that a lot of times when i read research or read blogs and stuff i think that people talk about this as occurring right after diagnosis but it, it's processual it happens over time right i don't know if you felt this way like i have actually found friends that are chronically ill too that can be a, a different amount of taxing friend and I, and, and it, I think that's been a really interesting occurrence because it was a point of connection for a lot of times, but that it was like, then I'm having to provide support for things that I also feel. And that's like incredibly difficult at times. Yeah. I think you're right. One of my very, very best friends has a chronic illness and 
I think what has kept us really close, especially dealing with that on that level, is that there's a tremendous amount of respect and giving each other space and allowing if another person, you know, if the other one wants space, neither one of us has ever taken that personally or it's it's just this unwritten understanding. I think that might be the difference. I'm just thinking of these past people in my life. And I think that it was so taxing to me because that was their primary identity and it wasn't mine. And so I think that maybe it's the equivalence of where it's the salience of it for your identity. So if you find two friends or even a romantic relationship, right, where their chronic illness identity is of around the same salience, that creates a really compatible partnership. But when it's of different salience, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I mean, and, that, and you're right. It's like that across everything. Right. You want to be, especially like the older you get, you get more understanding of what your own energy and understanding and identity is. And it becomes more and more valuable to be around people that match, not match the same identity, but match the same, yeah. like you said, salience of identity. Yeah, that's fascinating. I want to research that too now. See, you're just giving me all these research ideas. Sweet. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I do. That's what I do. I, <laughs> no, I mean, I love it. I love, I, I love asking questions. That's like my, I, I love asking questions too, but then I have to do a three year <laughs> study on it, you know? So <laughs> I can't ask I have a list of questions, but I'm like, I need to study this one day and this, this will add on to it. This is great. Well, and I think it's going to be so helpful to people because when you're dealing with a chronic illness and there's so many factors and so many moving pieces, it's like the understanding that your identity is all over the place. Like that doesn't even necessarily come into oh, it. Oh, you're so right. So for people to even read something like that and be like, oh, like that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that most of the time, like when we talk about identity, like it's anecdotally, like in, you know, TV shows or whatever, we talk about identity as this like solo construct. Like we have one identity, but then like, you'll see like, there's been movements, like we are many, like we have multiple things, right? It's just, it's, it's a good movement. Like we need to be moving towards this place. So it's like, we have multiple identities. We have our chronic illness identity and how that infiltrates our other parts, our religious identity, our romantic relationship identity, you know, all of these things like intersect. But I think a lot of the times it helps us because like we as human beings are naive scientists. We're always trying to put people in groups. And so it helps when we find one identity that we think is most salient to put someone in that group that's actually detrimental to that person's like well-being and understanding chronic illness in general. That makes me think of something. One thing that I've seen is being too rigid, like you said, in that identity can impact your learning and how you know, something that you read, something else you research, how well you adhere to treatments and different things, because all of a sudden your identity is, well, I'm not the kind of person that does that. I'm not, that's not me. And you feel like you're somehow, and I remember working through this with myself very, very clearly, like thinking that if I change my mind or switch gears or try something new that I wouldn't have. I felt like I was being a hypocrite or I was kind of going against myself or I was not, I wasn't being who I am. I wasn't, and it's, it's really interesting how it's, even if you're too rigid, it's like you're missing out on all these other things. Right. It's just constantly a process of like going through the tensions of these different identities and what it means to make sense of your whole self, your whole self-concept with this new identity as being part of it. And it's incredibly difficult and people do it at different paces. And a lot of times we talk about identity change is this really negative thing. Like it can negatively interference or it can be really bad, but like 
that's actually not what I found. My re- what I found in my own experience is like uh, my identity change has actually been fairly positive, I would say. And while there was some negative times, like when I broke up with my romantic partner, right, that was like a negative change. But like finding a new partner, positive relationship change, right? It's like, like, I don't know, just in research in general, and kind of how we talk about chronic illnesses, we just talk about it negatively. And it's just like, that's simply not what I found in my research and what I found in my experience. And I kind of think what you speak to as well, like it wasn't all bad. And I'd actually they said be a strong statement. I think I'll say it. Um, I actually think that it was positive. I think that it really changed my life trajectory for the better. Yeah. It's one of those things that I say quietly to myself and to people who understand me, because I know it's the most annoying thing for some people to say, but on some level, I have gratitude that I was diagnosed with this and I am navigating life with this chronic illness. Now, that's not to say that this has all been amazing mm-hmm. because holy crap, no. I mean, no. But I feel like I absolutely would not be where I am right now in a good way if I wasn't diagnosed. And I wouldn't be, I probably wouldn't be taking care of myself the way I am now if I wasn't diagnosed. I probably wouldn't have become, I've always been kind of an introspective person, but I don't think I would have made it my career if it didn't you know, if my health didn't depend on it. And I, I realize, again, that that is know, such I an annoying statement. Totally with you. We should put an asterisk on it right now. Like, <laughs> we mean that some parts have made us right. better. But you know what? We also can't look back at what our life would have been had we not have had it. So who's, this, this is the, the lemons we were given and we have made some lemonade. But that's not to say that they weren't bitter and sour and still are at times. And there's actually like a lot of studies that I've found, like when we have this kind of post-traumatic growth, which is what I call this in my research, most people don't think of chronic illness diagnosis as a traumatic incident. I kind of frame it in my research as a traumatic incident. I think it is. Yeah. So like similar, you know, like people typically talk about traumatic incidents being like hurricanes and stuff, but this is even like worse, right? Because what if you were in a hurricane like your whole life? So post-traumatic growth is like really important, not only for like with your chronic illness, but like it actually... The reach of post-traumatic growth goes beyond your chronic illness. Like your ability to grow from other traumatic incidents after having grown from chronic illness diagnosis is actually much more likely. So kind of back to the tools and toolbox, like we are given tools as we handle and cope with chronic illness that are applicable outside of just like health and well-being. I mean, we're some resilient people. Just really quickly for some people who have not heard about post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic growth is the idea that once we have a traumatic incident, it's commonly, again, been used in like hurricane or natural disaster research, that um, you can grow because, because of it. So you can become better after the incident than you even were before the incident. Not to say that like the incident wasn't traumatic, it wasn't really bad, and that still holds some negative feelings. You can grow and be better after. And so recently, it started to be used in some studies of chronic illness to show that after a certain chronic illness, you could have these positive positive beneficial outlooks that really help in other facets of your life beyond the chronic illness. So that's why they call it post-traumatic. So it's after the trauma, which, you know, in future research, I would actually rename it because for chronic illness, is it really post-traumatic growth? Is it post? Maybe we just drop post. I love that. What would you, I don't know. What would you rename it? Ongoing traumatic growth or longitudinal traumatic growth? Something to emphasize that like with chronic illness is the trauma is never really gone. I love your analysis with the hurricane. I think of it as like a tornado. If there's like a tornado in the area, you never know where it's going to touch down. 
and it's that for you're just constantly in like waiting for the tornado to touch down yeah. and then your house gets demolished one time but like in an actual tornado like you can rebuild it you can go on your way right but like our house gets demolished and then we're waiting for the next tornado to drop another traumatic incident right and then we have to rebuild the house i love that concept i first learned about it when i i did some consulting with like the national ms society and taught some classes and we they had a course that and a book by sean acker which is the happiness advantage pretty sure that's what it is and so he his research was all about positive thinking and how it affects the brain but he had a section on post-traumatic growth and I thought it was, and this was a while ago. And so I thought it was smart of them to bring something in like that and help the people that came to the MS Society and let them know, okay, this is an option because I had never heard of it. And so it's like really interesting because like we often talk about it in resilience and resilience is actually the idea that you just bounce back to the same state. So like when we're resilient, like we're just like, okay, well, like that really bad thing happened to me. And then we're just going to, we're, we're, we're back. We fixed it. But the idea of post-traumatic growth is not only did we experience, we not only bounced back to where we were, we bounced back above where we were. Right. Which I think is a really impactful thing. Cause like resilience is great. Yeah. But what does it mean to even be better than that, than who we were before the incident? I think that's, that's important because it helps people see, oh, wait a second. I'm not just resilient. Like I'm actually, I am coming back with more knowledge and understanding and more tools and more everything. And I think just being able to identify that within yourself, hey, I didn't know about this thing, but I realized that I've gone through it. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's very empowering. And I think that most people probably don't reflect in that way, but I urge any listeners that are listening to this to take some time to reflect on, hey, obviously there's some negative things that happen, but like, what? how are you better because of this? Because I think most all of us, there's a few aspects at least, no matter where you are in your journey, that you're better because of it. You're better at saying no. You're better at respecting your own body. You're be- you're better boundaries, right? Right. There's there's so many things. You're better at knowing what you want in life, right? Being like, this is what I'm going to go. I'm going to go get her now, right? So there's usually always something, regardless of where you are in your chronic illness journey, that you have already become better at. You're better at navigating the healthcare system. I mean, that's a win. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Even if it's the little things, like you're better at understanding what your body is telling you as far as what you can do and what you can't do. I remember I was helping somebody who was training for bike MS and which is a bike ride. And she realized that she would get a little fatigued and her body was starting to get a little stiff, but that didn't mean stop. What her body was actually letting her know was that she was about to go into another gear. And so that was not the end. That was like, okay, I'm at the midway point because I know if I keep moving and I keep doing something and I'm not saying like, keep pushing it, you know, I'm not saying that, but if I keep going, that is actually going to be like the turn of a page and I know where I'm at and I know I'm going to have another couple of hours. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing your body, that just reminds me of when I, so I haven't been what we call coursework in academia, which is this idea like you are still more of a student. Like I've been kind of on my own for a while, which happens later on in your career. But when I was in coursework, there's so much reading. You have to do so much reading. It's very intensive. Right. And I was just, my fatigue is too high at night. I had taught all day. I'd gone to classes, whatever. And most students at this time would stay up for the rest of the night and read articles. And I figured out quite quickly that instead of that, I was going to have to go to bed and wake up at 4 a.m. 
And, and, and so knowing my body enough to know that like no longer would I be pushing myself to the all nighter that my peers were doing, I had to kind of shift gears, right? Like it was like, I got to shift. And what this means is a 4 a.m. wake up call. And I know that doesn't align with my peers, but that's what I've got to do for my body to make this work. And, you know, who cares what aligns with the peers? <laughs> who cares? But, it, you know, it takes a while to say that, to say like, who cares what other people are doing? I mean, I remember that really. That's kind of the first time I realized that I had lupus was when I was an undergrad in the dorms. And I realized that people didn't need naps as much as I did. <laughs> and so I was like, I should probably go get this checked out. So I think that there is like, kind of this beautiful thing of comparison leads you a lot of times to a diagnosis, but then becomes one of like your like Achilles heels after getting a diagnosis. And so I think it's just like a juxtaposition of like comparison. So if there's one thing, and I know this is such a huge question, but if there is somebody listening and they're thinking, holy crap, I never even thought about this identity thing. I never even realized that that is one of the major things that I am dealing with. And it's okay and it's natural, but this is something that's huge. What would you tell them as far as helping them start that journey, which may or may not be 10 years? We're going to try to like really get that down to less than 10 years. I think <laughs> I would say, first off, you can do this. This is going to be a journey. It's not going to happen overnight. But I would also say that there's a therapeutic technique of identity mapping that I would highly encourage you to do, which is this idea that you lay out all of your identities that you have. So we talk about our names, we can talk about chronic illness identity, relational identity, ethnic racial identity, so more of these macro, gender identity, macro, micro identities, right? To lay them all out. And, you know, I have really specific guidelines for how to do it, but you can do it very generally and connecting those different identities with different lines. So you could do a squiggly line if these two identities don't really align well with each other. For instance, let's say that I really am young. And so I'm a young, vibrant person. So that's part of my identity structure, but chronic illness makes me fatigued. So those two identities really wouldn't align, right? Squiggly line, right? But other identities, let's just say me and my current relationship and my chronic illness identity, those would be a straight line because that really aligns. Those are really easy to be a part of both those identities and to enact those. So I think what I would suggest is putting this out on paper and really visualizing, A, the identities you have beyond your chronic illness identity, right? But B, to see how they all fit together to make up who you are. And again, it's so much more than just this one identity. And then those squiggly lines that you don't like that are squiggly, making a plan for how we're going to make them not squiggly. Is it that we need to get rid of certain people? Is it that we need to disclose? Maybe you haven't disclosed your illness. Maybe they would understand, right? Is it that we need to limit our time, create boundaries, whatever it may be, to, to try to make our lines more straight and less squiggly or difficult to be a part of multiple identities? I cannot tell you how much I love that. First of all, I just, yeah, I love same. a visualization. That is so amazing to realize just because two identities aren't matching up doesn't mean that either one of them are invalid or have to change. We could keep them and just work on how they work together. Mm -hmm. And I would also, one more thing I would add is just that like, tap into the social networks that you feel comfortable with. There's been like a lot of research and a lot of theories and social psychology about how our social networks can actually be, have a curative effect on our chronic illness and our well-being. So that is when you don't have a stigmatized identity. But if you can tap into these social networks, these people can provide you with a really, really, really amazing support network that you need to lean on and need to start to feel comfortable to lean on 
during these transitional times because your identities are going to flow and flux and it's going to be a process. But having those people that are stable for you and knowing that they're there for you, we actually, one of the most interesting things is that perceived social support is actually more influential on well-being than actual social support. So the idea that you think that you have people that are there for you is like so impactful. Like you really don't even need to like tap into it so much, which is why like visualizing, visualizing and thinking about and reflecting on these things that alone is just like really helpful for your well-being. Like you said, having people who understand who you are and what your identity, especially is when it comes to this chronic illness, which is a very big pivotal role, because I feel like you need, I always feel like it's such a cliche, but you do, you need that safe space to be able to figure out. Because the worst thing in the world is when you're figuring out your identity and other people get uncomfortable because they thought they knew what your identity was. But hold on, why are you changing it? What are you doing? And that can be some of your closest people. Like it can be your family. Like my family really struggled with this, right? Like my mom, I love her to death. We talk 18 times a day, but she was like, why can't you walk around the mall for 15 hours? And I was like, well, because I'm tired of my knees hurt, you know? But she was like, come on, let's just keep doing it. Kept pushing me. Relationships can be really a struggle too, but that doesn't mean that they're bad and you can still like work to explain them and to clarify things. And that relationship can improve with the alignment with your chronic illness. I'm going to have to have you come back and talk more about like, especially once you start looking into all these. So many studies to come. I love it. Thank you so, so much. I know this conversation has helped so many people. I probably uncover maybe something that they knew was not working or was different or was really uncomfortable and just putting a name to it and understanding what's going on, I think is so, so helpful. So Thank you so much for coming and sharing. I have really enjoyed this and I really hope that, you know, people can contact me, whatever. I'm just here to help and make my knowledge accessible to those who need it the most. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Live Your Life, Not Your Diagnosis. If you like the show, don't be shy. Please give us a five-star rating and review. Follow us on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening right now. To see complete show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, visit andreahansencoaching.com. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, take care.